U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the XO, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. How you doing? Still enjoying the brig? Oh, it's wonderful. You know, this kink in my back's finally worked out by sleeping on the concrete floor. Well, you do know that there's a bed in there still. Yeah, that's even harder. Right. So that should be even better for your back. Mm, Too hard. It's a fine balance that's required. Hmm. How did you get concrete onto the deck of a metal ship? Easy. I brought a bag of cement. I got some water from a bucket that I, you know, lowered over the deck. I poured and let set. You haven't tried this? I don't see why you would need to do this. Because it's my room now, and that's what I decided to do. Okay, then. We're going to go back to the uh, Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. While, you know, the crew starts taking that cement out. Oh. I mean, yay, more history, but oh, my bed. You're messing up my boat, dude. Someday it'll be my boat, and then all the floors will be concrete, (laughs) even if it sinks us. It will. So we're going over to the North Carolina coast this time. So are you ready to get our way? Let's cast off. All right. So the North Carolina area was a very important area to the Confederacy because of seaport of Wilmington. It was a very vital seaport. And also that the Outer Banks was available for bases for ships that were attempting to evade the Union blockade. A guy named Benjamin Butler, he sailed from Fort Monroe, and he actually captured the batteries at the Hatter's Inlet in August of 1861. And then in February of the next year, Brigadier General Ambrose Burnside, he put together a expedition, an amphibious expedition from Fort Monroe and captured Roanoke Island. This isn't a very well-known victory, but it's actually an important strategic victory for the Union. Then there was the Goldsboro Expedition in late of 1862. These guys marched inland from the coast to destroy railroad tracks and bridges. I mean, disrupting supply now, the lines remainder is always of the a good call. Yes, it is. Now, the remainder of the operations of North Carolina began in late of 1864. This is when Benjamin Butler and David D. Porter tried to capture Fort Fisher. Now, you hear me say tried because that didn't go well. Yes, as a uh, great general once said, do or do not. There is no try. All right, so let's go ahead and look at the battles real quick. So, the Battle of Hatteras Inlet Batteries. This is a combined operation of the U.S. Army and Navy. Always happy to work with our land-loving brethren. Yeah. So, the North Carolina Sounds, they pretty much occupy most of the coast from Cape Lookout to the Virginia border. Mm -hmm. And their eastern borders are marked by the Outer Banks. So this is a ideally location for raiding northern maritime commerce. 
So to protect raiders from federal reprisal, North Carolina, after, you know, succeeding from the Union, they established forts at the inlets and the waterways that allowed entrance and exit from the sounds. Now, only four inlets were deep enough for ocean-going vessels to pass. These were in Beaufort, Okaroke, Hatters, and Oregon Inlets. Right. Now, Hatters was the most important of these. So it was actually given two forts, Fort Hatters and Fort Clark. Fort Hatters was right next to the inlet on the sound side of the island. And Fort Clark was about half a mile to the southeast, closer to the Atlantic. Hmm. Now, the forts were not strong forts. They only had about 10 guns mounted by the end of August. They had five guns there, but they hadn't put them up yet. And Fort Clark, they only had five guns, period. These guns were also pretty light. They were 32-pounders or smaller. Oh, okay. I was going to say, 10 32-pound guns, I mean, that's a pretty good deterrent if you uh, have decent crews manning them, but if that's where it tops off and most of them yeah, are but, smaller? Well, remember the remember how the Navy artillery is keeps going up and up and up in caliber. So 32 pounds is getting on the smaller side now. I, I suppose I am thinking about 50 years back at this point. Oh, right, yeah, because with Ironclads, we were getting to close to half a ton towards the end of that. Yeah. So there was also a manning problem. North Carolina had raised and equipped 22 infantry regiments to serve, but 16 of them had been taken to Virginia, which means there's only six left. Hmm. And these guys were responsible for the defense of the entire coastline. What? Mm-hmm. No. Uh-uh. No. Yep. So there's only a fraction of one regiment that were in charge of both of these forts, and that was out of the 7th North Carolina Volunteers. So in total, less than a 1,000 men garrisoned all of the forts in the Carolinas. Reinforcements, if they were needed, would have to come from Beaufort, which is quite a way away. And another thing that didn't help was that the leaders there, they didn't keep their manpower shortage a secret. Why? Because they're idiots. Clearly. There were a number of Union captains and victims of shipwreck or or capture were detained near Hatter's Island, you know, waiting to be let loose to go home. And they were allowed pretty much free access to all of the forts. Okay. First rule of warfare. Keep your, you know, weaknesses secret. If you have POWs or detain civilians because you know, they stumbled into your arms, you don't let them wander from town to town. Yeah, so when these guys did make it home, they account that at least two of them gave full 
and valuable descriptions to the Navy about the status of the North Carolina defense or the Carolina's defense. You know, and sometimes people wonder why the Confederacy lost. <laughs> there's Southern hospitality, and then there's just being silly. Yeah. So the North decided that they were going to try to make the coast be rendered useless to the South. They wanted to try to sink old, useless, and ballast-laden ships in the inlets to block them. Oh, so um, think tank traps, but for ocean-going vessels in water that it's barely deep enough for these vessels. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So, Commander H.S. Stellingwagen. That's a name. Yeah. He was ordered to go to Chesapeake Bay to buy some old hulks, pretty much, that would work to sink in there and block everything up. Listen, here's $5. I want you to find the crappiest, held together with duct tape, even though it hasn't been invented yet, in a prayer boats. I just need you to get them, like, 30 miles up the coast, and then I don't care. Let them sink. Mm -hmm. Can I get $10? Five. No. No more. Four ninety nine. You drive a hard bargain. Five oh one. Tell you what, I have five dollars, that's it, but I'll throw in a cup of coffee. Sold. Wonderful. Coffee's hard to get to right now. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. Wartime shortages. Yeah. So he was also told to report his activities to the flag officer, a guy named Silas H. Stringham. He was the Commandant of the Atlantic Blockading Squadron. So this means he was the naval officer in charge of the blockade of the North Carolina coast. This was Stringham's first involvement, and time would prove that he would become the most important person in this expedition. Now, he did oppose the plan to block the inlets. He thought that the tidal currents would either just sweep the sunken hulks away or that the currents would just make new channels. I'm not an expert in the tides, so I don't know if that's uh, him raising a good concern or if that's just him being an overthinker and worrywart. Well, if you're blocking the current, the current's going to go around the blockade and it's going to carve... I mean... New stuff out. Yes, but at the same time, it's not like you're completely blocking... It's not like you're damming the inlet. You're just throwing stuff in the bottom to make it so, you know, ships are not going to have as easy of a time going through. The water's still flowing. Right. Well, you also got to think of a current is not just at the top. It's also all the water from top to bottom or just a section of the water. Still, if you block the current, it's got to go elsewhere, and that could cause erosion to happen quicker in areas that it didn't have to really worry about it before. So uh, what came of his concerns? Did anybody listen, or...? So what he thought was that the Union would have to actually hold the sound to make sure that the Southern rebels could not use it. He said that the forts would have to be captured. 
And, you know, the Navy can't do it alone. They're going to have to have the Army to help. Yeah, boats can't go on land. Now, he was in luck, though. The Army was willing to help them out because of Benjamin F. Butler. He was a political force, but he was also militarily incompetent. So Butler is ordered to assemble a force of 800 men for this expedition. And so he grabs 880. I mean, way to be an overachiever and get extra credit. So 500 of these guys were only able to speak German from the 20th New York Volunteers. Now, 220 of them were from the 9th New York Volunteers, and 100 of them were from the Coast Guard. This isn't the actual Coast Guard. This is just an army unit called the Coast Guard. So this is not the IRS's little mini-navy before it becomes the Coast Guard. This is New New Yorkers saying, hey, we guard the coast. Yeah, they were the 99th New York Volunteers, called the Coast Guard. Wow, way to make it really confusing for us in a century and a half, guys. Nice job. (laughs) And he also grabbed 20 regular army troops from the 2nd U.S. Artillery. Did they speak only French? They speak only boom. Mm, uh, The universal language of war. Yes. Well, in the spirit of those uh, 500, La Sun Zu Carolina Gehen. Do you want to translate that? Uh, let's go to Carolina, according to Google. Okay. So all of these guys were put aboard two boats that the Commander Stellwagen had purchased. They were called the Adelaide and the George Peabody. Now, there was an objection to this. Because they were like, uh, these boats will not survive a Hatteras storm. And Stallwagon was like, well, guess what? We can only do this in fair weather anyway, because a storm is going to prevent the landings. So shut up. (laughs) Shut your trap. Don't pretend like you know more than you know. Just get on the boat. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Butler is gathering his forces and... Stringham was making his preparation, and he learned that the War Department's orders to Butler's superior, Major General John E. Wool, had made a statement, quote, The expedition originated in the Navy Department and is under its control. Now, this told Flag Officer Stringham that if anything happened, he going down for it. So he's like, you know what? If I'm going down for it, I'm making my own plans and we're going to do that. <laughs> so he selects seven warships for this expedition. The USS Minnesota, the USS Cumberland, the USS Susquehanna, the USS Wabash, the USS Pawnee, the USS Monticello, and the USS Harriet Lane. All of these were U.S. Navy ships, except of the Harriet Lane. This was a revenue cutter. Here's your Coast Guard, your tax cops. I I was going to say, one of these names is not like the other, and uh, that's either a civilian ship or somebody that just got roped into it. This is your, your, your revenue tax cutter. Well, I guess even the IRS has to get involved in wartime sometimes. 
Yep. Uh, and he also brought in the steam tug Fanny. And this was an armed steam tug. Oh. So just a, a little a little boom boat, if you would. Well, they needed it to tow some of the surf boats that would be used for the landing. Now, this is an amphibious operation. They're doing a, a, a shore landing. I'm just picturing in my head a, a little tugboat with a comically oversized cannon. Big Bertha on a, on a little exactly, boat. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so on August 26th, the Flotoa gets underway and moves down the coast to the vicinity of Cape Hatteras. They swung around the Cape the next day and anchored near the inlet in full view of the defenders. They were like, hi guys, we're here. Hello. We, well, wait, 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 wait. This is, let me find the German translation. What? Oh yeah, because 500 of them are German. Got it. Hello. Wir sind er und sie sind Erobern. Hello, we are here to conquer you. And all of our German listeners, please, if any complaints, email the XO, and I will be happy to put him on bread and water. I, hey, I, uh, you know, Frau Blinkmeier, um, from high school, okay? One year of German, I'm sorry. The program was cut due to budget cuts, so I only was able to do one year. I apologize for my bad pronunciation. <laughs> so, so the commanders knew that, you know, their 580 men would need help. So he calls for reinforcements from the forts Oracroke and Oregon. Unfortunately, communication's not so instantaneous as it is nowadays. Yeah, I, I feel like the telegraph was invented by this time, but yeah, telegraph wires were not widespread. If it was. Yeah, so the reinforcements did not arrive until late the next day when it was too late. So, early on the morning of August 28th, the USS Minnesota, Wabash, and Cumberland began their bombardment of Fort Clark. And the other lighter warships, they stayed with the transports to about three miles to the east, where they began disembarking troops. Stringham kept his boats moving in a loop, with Wabash towing Cumberland. Because, you know, Cumberland's faster than Wabash, and they're like, keep up, keep up, keep up. <laughs> At around 1100, USS Susquehanna joined in. And all these boats would deliver broadsides against the fort, move out of range, reload and come back and fire again by you know remaining in motion they did not allow the defenders in the fort to correct their aim before shots and so you know their accuracy no go so maybe i'm just looking at this with the hindsight of a century and a half wouldn't it have made more sense i mean obviously they are just trying to keep folks from running past the fort and getting into the inlets. But to help prevent a situation like this, couldn't they have, you know, ranged the guns and then put buoy markers out for like, hey, this is the 400-yard buoy. Adjust your guns to the 400 mark. This is the 500-yard buoy. Wash, rinse, repeat. Well, it's, it's not that. It's aiming it at the actual vessel. 
it's not range, it's the actual aim. It's harder to hit a moving target than it is a stationary target. Oh, so it isn't so much that they couldn't adjust their guns based on... Because you were saying they were just hopping just in a range and then hopping out. Which I'm assuming they have a similar range to the fort guns then. Well, no. Not necessarily. I'm not sure what their ranges are. What what they're doing is they're coming into range, shooting, and then sailing out of range. So they're not stopping to shoot, reload, shoot, reload, shoot, reload, shoot. They're coming in, shooting, and going It's a away, 19th century drive-by. Or rather, a sail-by. Yeah, and this is the first time the U.S. Navy used this tactic. The British French had already been doing this. Wait, so prior to this, the Navy never thought, what if we just kept on moving? Mm-hmm. This entire time, I've been, I thought we were already doing that. <laughs> no. How has this never come up? Okay. Wow. <laughs> Good on you for having the common sense not to stop. Now, because they did this, the shots that Fort Clark was returning fire with missed completely. and They never hit a ship. And shortly after noon, the defenders were like, Grabbing from our ammunition, and they were like, where's our ammunition? Oh, there's one in the corner. Grab that. Now, where's the next one? They're running low. Very low. I don't care if we're running out of cannonballs. Put the silverware in. Throw in the bowling balls. If it's roughly spherical and or metal, let's see if it'll work. And about 25 minutes later, they were out. They had no more ammunition. <laughs> So once they found out they were out of ammunition, they were like, well, guys, I don't want to be here anymore. Let's just get out of here. I mean, they, they didn't have the audacity to pull a, a request that a Norwegian captain did on the United Kingdom back in the 1700s. They were just like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so some of them went to Fort Hatteras and others went to go to like boats that were around there. Now, Colonel Max Weber, who was commanding the federal troops, had already landed. And he sees what was going on, and he takes some of his men to take possession. Now, unfortunately, the fleet did not know that they had abandoned the fort and continuously fired for another five minutes. It was because of this that the landing force suffered it's only casualty. A soldier was seriously wounded in his hand by a shell fragment. Oof. Yeah. Now, because some of the troops were able to get the attention of the gunners on the ships by waving a very large American flag, the gunners stopped the bombardment and then string him, looked at his captains, looked at Fort Hatteras, and gave the nod. We're going after them now. <laughs> Round two. Now, we're going to go over to the landing. It was underway, but it started to have a bit of a hiccup. There were still only about a third of the troops on shore, and the winds started to get higher. This, you know, produced higher, higher waves and started swamping and overturning the landing boats. Yes, because these landing boats were a little more than uh, large rowboats, I assume, right? Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, nobody at this time knew how to swim. 
Got doggy paddle, guys. Doggy paddle. Come on. Doggy paddle with 60 pounds of equipment on their backs. Lose the equipment. Doggy paddle, guys. Doggy paddle. <laughs> so General Butler sees this and he's like, okay, guys, let's stop the landing operations right now. We're too dangerous. We're, we're losing guys. So Colonel Weber finds that he only has 318 men with him of the 880 that he brought. He had 102 from the 20th New York Regiment. He had 68 from the 9th New York Regiment, 28 from the Coast Guard Regiment, and 45 artillerymen, 45 Marines, and 28 sailors. And the sailors are important because they can man the heavy guns. Yeah, I suppose it's the same principle as working a cannon on a ship. It's just, you know, hey, where you're standing isn't moving, so it's actually easier to hit the target. So they could reasonably defend themselves against a counterattack. They had managed to wrestle ashore several field artillery pieces, but they were not strong enough to mount a attack on the fort. Now, over at the fort, Stringham keeps his ships moving again, doing the whole going around in circles, go in, fire, out, reload, in, fire, out, reload thing that had worked so well for him already. And the defenders, seeing what happened over there at Fort Clark, they decided they were going to try to conserve their ammunition. Yeah, I mean, they already exhausted all their cannonballs, so... That was at the other fort. Oh, oh, new fort, new fort. Right, right. Yeah, this is Fort Hatters. Fort Clark's done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if the idiots at Clark blew all the ammo, we uh, probably shouldn't do the same. Well, I'm sure some of the guys at Clark made it over there and they're like, hey guys, this is what we did. Don't do it. <laughs> they keep moving. It's the weirdest thing. You can't hit them. So that means that they started firing sporadically. So Stringham, with all of his intelligence, thought that maybe that the fort had been abandoned. There was no flag flying, but that was because before the battle, the old flag had been reduced to tatters and would never replaced. <laughs> yeah. So he sent the USS Monticello into the inlet to sound it out. But then the fort came back to life. It's alive. It's alive. Boom, 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 boom. The ship grounded while she tried to get herself out of there. And because she was grounded, she was hit by five shots. Thankfully, none of this did permanent damage, but there were some wounded. All minor, but there were still wounded. So as, you know, darkness sets in, the fleet draws off because weather's coming in. I don't know if you know anything about that area, but that's a very weatherful area. I, I was going to say, I've never been to the Carolinas, but from what I understand, it is not a picturesque coast a lot of the time. It is, imagine a Wisconsin winter on an ocean beach, right? There's, it's very stormy there. Very, very rough seas, rough weather, not conducive to good sailing and people choose to live there willingly people choose to live in 
lots of places willingly that you never would have thought that they would want to live. Yeah. Hey, at least Australia has the excuse of they started as a penal colony. I'm not talking about Australia. Oh, I know. I'm just saying hostile places to live. Yeah. How cold is it? Is it there right now? I'm wearing four layers. I'm okay. Yeah. Don't don't give it to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so the defenders are exhausted and looking for reinforcements. And the federal troops that are ashore go to sleep, you know, supperless and with very low water. And, you know, thinking, now the enemy's going to bring in reinforcements. We're not going to be, we are not up at our full. So sometime after dark, the reinforcements do start arriving at the fort. And a Confederate gunboat, the CSS Warren Winslow, brings in some of the garrison from the fort, Karakarok. And, of course, some of their sailors also stayed to help man the guns. So this brought the number of men in the fort up to over 700, with more expected from New Bern. Okay, yeah, they got the top off they needed. Also, there was a flag officer named Samuel Barron, who was the commander of the coastal defenses of North Carolina and Virginia. And the guy in command there was like, you know what, dude? I am so tired and exhausted. You're it. You got command. And, you know, flag officer Baron was looking around is like, you know what? I think I can do this. Because, you know, we got more reinforcements coming from New Bern. We can take that fort back. We can do this, guys. So dawn creeps up. And the weather had become moderate again, or at least moderate enough that the fleet could return and resume its bombardment. They were also able to drive off a transport bringing more reinforcements. Well, that's, that's good. It keeps the bad situation from getting worse. So the fleet initially kept doing their roundy, shoot, roundy, reload, roundy, shoot thing again. But they found that they were at a range of the guns in the fort. And since, you know, they were in no danger of being fired upon, they just anchored out there and just started pouring fire into the... There was, you know, nothing that the men in the forts could do but take it. <laughs> all right, men, let's just uh, stay away from all exterior walls and windows and... uh just remember, it's not cannon fire. Angels are bowling with our walls. What about the new windows and, you know, disappearing walls? Should we stay away from them, too? Yes. All, all windows <laughs> and all construction, please keep away from. If the construction grows closer, find a new spot. <laughs> so, after about three hours, you know, Fleet Officer Barrett, He's like, okay, all my officers, we need to talk. And they decide they're going to seek terms. You know, casualties, thankfully, have been pretty light. But we don't want to take any more chances. At this point, the various reports say that the between four and seven are, are dead. And the wounded are only 20 to 45. 
And this is out of a garrison that, at the moment, is about 700 and change. Yes. Wow. And after three hours of bombardment. Yeah, that's... I'm not saying way to go, but, I mean, that could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So, at around 1100, they fly the white flag. Butler insisted upon surrender, and Baron is like, well, that's good. I'm in charge anyway. Remember, you put me in charge, so we're going to do that. And the battle was over. The survivors went into POW camps, and the list of prisoners had 691 names. So the army applied the pressure, and the navy supplied the hammer. Yep. So Butler and Stringham... They leave immediately after the, you know, string them to Washington and Butler accompanying the prisoners to New York. Now, there's been people who argue that each of them were trying to gather credit for the victory, but they say that they were trying to persuade the administration to abandon the original plan to block Hatter's Inlet because now that it's in federal hands, it was not useful to the Confederacy anymore. And it actually allowed the Union to pursue raiders into the South. So the War Department had already decided to retain possession of the inlet. So they had nothing to fear anymore. They're, yep, we agree. We're good. No need to block it anymore. Let's use it. So, you know, since the Federal army stayed in those forts the other forts that were around there they kept looking over there still the stars and stripes still (laughs) the stars and stripes still okay guys we cannot defend this let's get the hell out of here all right guys i i thought they were just having a a funny joke and they found an old flag and thought they'd uh pull a prank on us day three of the prank i'm beginning to wonder if this is a prank yeah let's just get the hell out of here And they did. So that is the battle of the Hatterets Inlet Batteries. That was pretty fun, huh? That was a lot more engaging than just, there was a fort. They shot at it. (laughs) The fort realized, huh, we're not winning this one. We surrender. I mean, that is ultimately what happened. But it's actually had some back and forth. There were some interesting tactics proposed by both sides. Mm-hmm. The Confederates had an iota of common sense. Yeah. So, we, you want to try getting one more battle out of the way? I think we can fit one more in. All right, so this will be the Battle of Elizabeth City. So, Elizabeth City lies near the mouth of the Pasco Tank River, where it goes into the Abelmerle Sound from the north. And north of the city is the Dismal Swamp Canal, and to the east is the southern segment of the Adelmarie and Chesapeake Canal, separated by the river by, you know, just a small, small area of land. A lot of the food and the foraged supplies delivered from North Carolina to southeastern Virginia was transported along these canals. And, you know, Norfolk, Virginia actually depended upon these canals for its substance. So as long as the sounds remained in Confederate hands, Norfolk could be well supplied despite the blockading efforts of the Union Navy at the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. All right. This is going to change. 
<laughs> it always does. <laughs> this changed because of the battle that we just covered earlier. Ah. So the first shots of the Burnside expedition were fired on February 7th of 1862 in the Battle of Roanoke Island. And we'll be getting into that battle when we get into that battle. Yeah. Suffice to say that after that battle, Flag Officer Lynch takes his fleet to Elizabeth City to resupply and repair the forest. Now, he was not able to find ammunition to replenish his magazines, and so he sends Commander Thomas T. Hunter to Norfolk. He also sends the CSS Raleigh up the Dismal Swamp Canal to hunt for ammunition as well. And Hunter returns with enough to resupply only two ships. So he divides it among all of his remaining serviceable ships, and the Raleigh was not able to get back in time. So they're fighting with low supplies and down a ship. Yeah. Lynch has about six ships at his disposal. Each only had enough shot powder to be able to fire ten times. When you say ten times, you mean each cannon has enough for ten shots, or they can only fire, you know, ten shots total across all the... Ten times. Oh. Ten times. Oh, no. I thought you meant like ten broadsides. Sixty shots spread out. Six boats. Each boat can fire ten times. Okay, so across six boats, you have enough for effectively two actual broadsides. Well, I mean, these are also mosquito boats. So his flagship, which was called the Seabird, carried two guns. This was a converted side-wheel steamer. Three of the other vessels were former tugs. Two of them with two guns and one with only one gun. Okay, so this is a classic example of how the Confederacy's Navy was, you know, very much in the vein of the early American Navy. Listen, merchantmen, uh, random port boats, anybody who has something that floats, you want to join the Navy? We'll put a gun on there. And there was also the Fanny with two guns. This had actually been a transport vessel for the Army before she was captured. There was also the CSS Black Warrior. This is a schooner, and this had been put into service four days before the battle, and it was only armed with two 32-pound guns. They uh, really like their pairs of guns. Yeah, so you know how many guns are bringing into this fight? Uh, Five ships, one or two guns each. You know what? I'm going to guess eight. Eleven. Hey, they hit two digits. Good for them. <laughs> Lynch also counted on four guns at the Cobbs Point Battery for support. But we've, we know how that goes now. We're doing yeah. the whole circle fire thing. Yeah. I'm not really sure if you can count shore batteries as part of your battle group, because if you're outside of their effective range, considering they're shore-based, can't really contribute that much. Yeah. So, Flag Officer Goldsboro orders his gunboats to pursue Lynch and his Mosquito fleet, and orders the fleet to be destroyed. 
Now, none of his vessels had been seriously damaged up until this point. So he takes 14 ships, which carried a total of 37 guns. And Goldsboro says, you know what, guys? I trust you. You got it. I'm going to stay here. I'm noticing a little bit of a discrepancy. So Commander Stephen C. Rowan takes command. Now, these 14 were similar to the Confederate boats because these were all converted from civilian vessels. The flagship, the Delaware, and six others had been sidewheel steamers before being acquired by the Navy. There was one that was also a former tug. There were two others that had been ferries before the war. And the last five were screw steamers. And that's a steamer with a screw prop? Yep. You know, new technology. Yeah, yeah. Everybody loves their new toys. And so they sail off towards Elizabeth City to hunt down these rebel scum. Dun, dun, dun. I will not continue that song. Better not get us sued. I'm going to point right at you and say, nope, not me, him. Get him. (laughs) So once they get up to Elizabeth City, darkness was falling, so they anchored there for the night, right off of the city. So Lynch uses this time to arrange his own ships for the upcoming battle. He decided to base his position on the battery of the four guns at Cobb's Point. So he places his schooner opposite the point and his five other ships in a line across the river upstream. He took this position because he expected the Union to try to reduce the battery before proceeding up the river after him. His final orders to his captains were to not let the ships fall into enemy hands. If they failed, they should try to escape or destroy their vessels or scuttle their vessels. Am I the only one getting deja vu from a certain battle in 1812? This is circling back about 30 episodes. Maybe. Listeners, I'll have to go back 30 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So, at dawn, Lynch goes over to visit Cobb's Point Battery. He wanted to coordinate its defense with his fleet. And when he gets there, he sees seven militiamen and a civilian. Oh no, what a horde of rampaging, dangerous folk. He was hoping for that. That's what he wanted. Lynch is on the defense. Remember? Yeah. Okay. He's he's realizing he's in the wrong spot. Well, I mean, he planned on the battery to be the strong point for right. his battle. So... He had to order the commander of his, what was it, a frigate or? Schooner. Schooner. Yeah, so he had to order the commander of his schooner to come ashore with most of his crew to man the guns, which pretty much left only enough men on the ship to take her up the canal. But now that they had the additional men, they were able to ban three of the four guns. Well, that's something. Giving up two guns on a schooner to gain three on land. I mean, that's a net gain. Right. 
But immediately when hostilities commenced, the militiamen noped out, which means only two of them were operational. <laughs> now, the battery turned out to be irrelevant, period, because the ammunition stores were low. And because his mission was to destroy the rebel fleet, Rowan ordered his ships to just bypass the battery altogether. So they, they didn't even bother with the battery. They were like, bye, toodaloos. The commander in the battery got off a few shots and pretty much missed every single one of them. And once the Union forces got upstream, they were like, we cannot aim our guns that far. So, popcorn, you guys want to watch? Well, I'm not sure if it was popcorn. They were probably just passing uh, chewing tobacco. They got to sit there and watch their fleet get destroyed. Yes, nothing quite brings uh, a garrison together, like watching your support get decimated. Yeah, the first Confederate boat to fall was the Black Warrior. She was fired on by the entire attacking force as they passed the battery. So the crew were like, oh, we're not doing nothing with this. Uh, fire? Yes. Set it on fire. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Fanny was run ashore and then burned. A boarding party captured the CSS Ellis in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Her captain tried to blow the Ellis up, but the charges were discovered, and the boarding power were able to, you know diffuse the charges so it didn't go boom. Yeah, they were able to salvage the ship. Mm-hmm. The CSS Seabird tried to escape, but was run down by the USS Commodore Perry. The CSS Beaufort and the Apple Max escaped into the Dismal Swamp Canal. And... They found that the Apple Max was two inches too wide to pass through a lock. Ah, oh, so close. So they burned her. The CSS Forest was dry docked to repair the screw that she had damaged and was burned along with a unnamed and not done yet gunboat. Now, the CSS Raleigh was still at Norfolk, so she was the only one to pretty much survive, other than the CSS Beaufort. Now, casualties weren't very bad. The North lost two men and seven were wounded, and the South lost four and six were wounded and 34 were captured. All righty, so that was the Battle of Elizabeth City. Not much of a battle and more of a fish-in-a-barrel situation. So we have teamed up with a veteran-run company called Hero Cards. They are a company that has a set of trading cards to honor our fallen angels. And so after each episode, we are going to honor one of our fallen angels. And for the first one today is going to be a 
guy called John A. Moore of the United States Navy. His hometown was Bisbee, Arizona. He was stationed on the USS Grayback SS-208. He received the Navy Cross three times, the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was February 26, 1944, 50 nautical miles south of Okinawa, Japan. He was 34 years old, and this was in World War II. So a little bit about John Moore. He was born July 10th, 1910 in Brownswood, Texas, and his family moved to Brisbee, Arizona. He left Arizona to attend the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, where he was a boxer and soccer player, and he graduated the class of 1932, receiving his commission as an ensign in June. Six months later, he was married in San Pedro with his wife, Virginia May, on December 19, 1932, and they had a daughter, Shawla Ann, on March 3, 1934. After graduating from the academy, he first served on board the USS Arizona BB-39, and in November of 1934, he transferred to New London, Connecticut, for submarine training. After five tours on different submarines, he was given command of the submarine USS Grayback, SS-208. Now, the Grayback was one of the most successful combat submarines of World War II. She was credited with 10 successful combat patrols, sinking 14 Japanese ships at 63,835 tons. John Moore commanded the Grayback for its last three combat missions all of them in the East China Sea. And during that time, he helped pioneer the American Wolfpack submarine tactics that were extremely effective against the Japanese Navy, you know, later in the war. And, of course, his leadership earned him a Navy Cross for each of the three successful missions. His first Naval Cross citation is, The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Navy Cross to Commander John Anderson Moore, United States Navy, for extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession as commanding officer of the USS Grayback, SS-208, on the 8th War Patrol of that submarine during the period 26 September 1943 to 10 November 1943 in enemy-controlled waters of the East China Sea. During this aggressive patrol, Commander Moore made five separate well-planned and brilliantly executed torpedo attacks on escorted enemy ships which resulted in the sinking of an auxiliary cruiser and two freighters. Through his experience and sound judgment, he brought his ship safely back to a port. His conduct throughout was an inspiration to his officers and men, and in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. His second one reads, The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting a gold star in lieu of a second award of the Navy Cross to Commander John Anderson Moore, United States Navy, for extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession as commanding officer of the USS Grayback, SS-208, on the 9th War Patrol of that submarine during the period 2 December 1943 to 2 January 1944 in enemy-controlled waters of the East China Sea. On the night of 18 to 19 December 1943, Commander Moore contacted a heavily escorted convoy of Japanese freighters, Maneuvering on the surface, he fired into the convoy, sinking one freighter, damaging two others and sinking a gunboat. 
On the same patrol, he contacted another escorted convoy at night and sank three enemy freighters. He followed up with another attack and sank a converted mine layer, then destroyed an armed trawler while departing from the area. Through his experience and sound judgment, Commander Moore brought his shift safely back to port. His conduct throughout was an inspiration to his officers and men in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. So it sounds like he was a career Navy man and a very effective submarine commander. So his third Navy Cross citation reads as so. The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting a second gold star in lieu of a third award of the Navy Cross, posthumously, to Commander John Anderson Moore, United States Navy, for extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession as commanding officer of the USS Greyback, SS-208 on the 10th War Patrol of that submarine during the period of 26 January 1944 to 26 February 1944, in enemy-controlled waters of the East China Sea. While conducting the patrol of his ship in Japanese-infested waters, Commander Moore skillfully penetrated strong escort screens to deliver smashing torpedo attacks against hostile shipping. By his daring aggressive tactics, he succeeded in sinking and damaging an important amount of hostile tonnage. The conduct of Commander Moore throughout this patrol reflects great credit upon himself and was in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. So on his 10th and final combat patrol, the Gray Beck left Pearl Harbor for the last time January 28, 1944, and a month later the sub radioed it had sunk two Japanese Navy cargo ships. Now, he only had two torpedoes remaining, and so the Gray Beck was ordered home. They expected to arrive at Midway on March 7th, 1944, but were never heard from again. And three weeks later, the Navy declared her missing and presumed lost on March 30th, 1944. Now, after the war, in 1949, the U.S. Navy issued a report on 52 lost American World War II submarines with the approximate location of where each one was lost. And the presumed lost location of the Grayback was later found to be a mistake after being based on one incorrect digit in the latitude and longitude taken from a mistranslated Japanese war record. So the New York Times says, quote, The error went undetected until last year in 2018, when an American undersea explorer asked a researcher, Yutaka Iwasaki, to go through the wartime records of the Imperial Japanese Navy base at Seisbo. The files included daily reports received by radio from the Naval Air Base at Naha, Okinawa, and the entry for February 27, 1944 contained a promising lead. The report for that day said that a Nakajima B-5N carrier-based bomber had dropped a 500-pound bomb on a surface submarine, striking just after the conning tower. The sub exploded and sank immediately, and there were no survivors. The Japanese records showed the correct latitude and longitude for the attack, but didn't match the 1949 U.S. Navy report. So a Lost 52 project led by undersea explorer Tim Taylor was a private research group dedicated to solving the mysteries of the submarines in the Navy report. 75 years after being lost at sea, the wreck of the USS Greyback was found on June 5, 2019, 50 nautical miles south of Okinawa, and 1,427 feet below sea level. With the discovery, the Lost 52 project brought closure to the 80 families of the lost sailors who gave the last full measures of devotion to their country. 
So, Commander John Anderson Moore rests entombed with his lost crew in the USS Greatback. His name is inscribed on the wall of the missing at the Manila American Cemetery and Memorial in the Philippines. On October 20th, 1979, the frigate USS John A. Moore, FFG-19, was named in his honor and was launched by the U.S. Navy. Thank you, John Moore. So, XO, anything you would like to say before we uh, pull back in ashore? Well, we now have a Discord server. You can find that link in the show notes. If you'd like to talk with the captain or myself, and uh, we do encourage discussion among, you know, our fans. If you wish to, you know, declare your fan-dom, fan, yeah, yeah, I don't want to say devotion. <laughs> devotion sounds so official. <laughs> <laughs> if you wish to advertise that in public that you like our show, we have a swag shop now. Chip store. Shirts, mugs, other things. Some things are uh, redacted for reasons. Yes. <laughs> if you wish to contact us, perhaps critiquing me on my not-so-great German. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can reach us using uh, email with usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And Captain, I know you're waiting for me to muck this one up because uh, I have a very established history of doing so yeah if we if twitter still exists at usn history pod awesome again that's assuming it still exists yeah if it still exists if not then it'll be replaced by something i'm sure and, and who knows who knows by the time this episode airs that joke may have run its course maybe i wouldn't count on it <laughs> And with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>